Uh, you could tell if you were to give me a guitar. It wouldn't work very well. Um, anyway, I'll be opening up the word for us today. We're continuing our series in Acts, uh, and this week I'll be opening up particularly the section on Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31, and so if you wanted to open up, uh, that, that'll work well. Now, as I read this throughout the week, I was thinking that perhaps, you know, a good question to help us navigate through this would be, how do we respond to hostility towards the gospel message? And I think certainly that's a good question, and I'm sure a number of us have experienced different amounts of, of hostility toward the Christian gospel in the past. Um, I remember back in 2007, I was working for Anglican Youth Works, and we were running the, the Christian campsites up in the Port Hacking, um, and one of our trainers had this crazy idea of sending a team of us over to Russia to help on a campsite over there, and we're like, yeah, sure, let's, let's do that, right, <laughs> that's normal. Um, and so anyway, we, we prepared it, and the idea was that um, during the summer, the, they, the government runs a bunch of um, uh, camps in what are ex-communist training camps, um, but they, they run, you know, kids' camps in there, uh, and the one that we were going to was particularly for underprivileged children. And so we expected to go there and to hang out with these kids and share the message of Jesus with them and have fun in Russia, right? Um, doing the things that you do in Russia. Uh, and so, but when we, we, we flew over to there and the plan was to arrive in Finland and then get our final briefing before we catch the train into St. Petersburg where, where the, um, the campsite was. Once we arrived in Finland, the, the team leader who was organising it told us that um, another one of the groups that they had sent into a similar campsite just before of international Christians had told a bunch of these kids about Jesus uh, and then one of the kids had heard the message, become a Christian and then gone home and then um, his home life was so sad that he decided to commit suicide and he wrote a letter saying, I'm going home to be with Jesus. And so it hit the news that week that international Christians entered into campsites and caused Russian children to commit suicide. And that was just days before we were about to enter. Um, and so uh, they'd, they'd discussed with the, um, the leaders of the campsite that we were going into whether or not we should still go, because um, the leaders of the campsite weren't Christian at all. They just loved having, having happy international free labour. Um, and so they said, look, we can have you come, but you're just not allowed to mention Jesus. And so we're like, oh man, what, what do you do there? And so anyway, we, we turned up and carried boxes and boxes of Bibles that we were planning to, to give to these kids there and then hid them in one of the rooms, put a bunch of blankets over the top of them uh, and then went in to have a cup of tea and some ginger biscuits with these like big intimidating Russian women leaders of this campsite and they said welcome great to have you now the authorities are coming to inspect our site so you must go and hide <laughs> and dead said we walked outside of the gates of this communist camp that was sprinkled with grey um, we walked outside the camp and as we were going in the authorities walked in carrying AK-47s to inspect that everything was normal like, how, how do you respond to hostility to the gospel, right? <laughs> that, that was a genuinely tricky situation. And I think in this passage today, we've got a bit of wisdom for how to navigate situations like that. And, and I do acknowledge that that's a bit of a weird one, right? Not everyone's going to go to Russia um, all the time. But, but even in our normal day-to-day -day lives, we will meet people who are hostile to the Christian gospel. I run a little bush school here in Robertson uh, and we do bushcraft things with the kids but one of the things we do each day is open up the Bible with the kids 
And I have um, kids that are from Christian families and kids that are not from Christian families. And normally when somebody's interested in bringing a kid out to join a group, I tell them, why don't you come out, see the site, see what we do, um, and see anything that might offend you, because I'd love to talk about that up front. Um, And I had this one family come out who is um, totally opposed to Christian things, um, but interested in the bushcraft kind of stuff that I do. And so he came out with his son, um, and then just he said to me, now... Keen to know, what kind of Christian are you? <laughs> I'm like, uh, what, what do you mean by that? And he's like, you're not one of those ScoMo Christians, are you? <laughs> how, do, how do you respond to hostility to the gospel? At, at that point, I think I said, oh, I'm, I'm kind of like a Bible Christian. Is that helpful? <laughs> anyway, he didn't come back. Um, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. Uh, but this week, as I was looking at this passage, we, we see these guys that are faced with hostility to the gospel. And so I thought a helpful question might be, how do you respond to hostility to the, to the gospel? But then as I read it more, I realised that it's actually broader than that. Because it's not just um, hostility that they meet here, because this is a continuation from what Graham spoke about last week. There are both unfriendlies and friendlies in here. There are people who are astonished and onlooking at the, at the miracle that has just happened... And so they're curious and they want to know more about it. And so instead of how do you respond to hostility to the gospel, I thought I might ask the question of how do you respond to confusion to the gospel, if that makes sense, whether negative or positive. And hopefully we'll be able to find some wisdom in here. Now, the story so far is that three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Peter and John were heading up to the temple and then a beggar was being brought up there and was asking for some healing. And they were like, look, we can't, I don't have gold or money or anything, but what I do have, I can give you in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And so he was healed. That was very exciting. And then seeing an opportunity, Peter got up and just started talking about Jesus. And, and then at the end of that, he called them to repentance as well into this gospel. And heaps of people were really excited about that. Now, because of the commotion that was happening, the, the temple guards and the Sadducees were like, hey, what, what's going on? What's all, what's all this happening over here and so they came on to investigate and they're like oh man I'm not sure if I like this how about we just put you in jail because obviously you could just do that back then Uh, and so they popped Peter and John in jail overnight and then the next morning this is where we kind of pick up the story where they are interrogating them in the temple to try and figure out what they should do with them and so if we Pick it up at verse 7. This is where we'll kind of slow down here. So we're in chapter 4, verse 7, and it says that they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power or by what name do you do this? Uh, And at this point, I I really love the way that they respond to to this question because um, you've got to keep in mind that these Sadducees, they had concerns about the resurrection. It says earlier in, uh, in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus a resurrection from the dead. So we know that there's curious onlookers and that the Sadducees are concerned that they're speaking about the resurrection, which was a no-no from them. Um, and yet they ask this question, by what power is this commotion happening? And at this point... Peter kind of grabs the situation by the scruff of the neck and he wants to bring so much clarity to it that he reframes the question. Do you notice that? They say, by what power is this happening? And then his answer is slightly different and he even even 
asks the question again for them. Does that make sense? So check this out. In verse uh, 8, he says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called today for an act of kindness shown to the cripple, you notice that? They didn't ask about the act of kindness. They asked, by what, by what power is this commotion happening? And they wanted to reframe that because what they are doing is an act of love and they wanted to be inescapably clear about that. If we are being called to an account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man has stands before you totally healed. Um, what they are keen for in the face of gospel confusion is to bring inescapable clarity to the situation. In verse um, 12, is it? Yeah, he says, salvation is found in no one else. He wants to be absolutely certain that this is about Jesus and knowing that salvation can only be found in him. And when we discover that a, a wise way to respond to gospel confusion is to just simply bring inescapable clarity, it's kind of helpful because this isn't the first time that this pops up in the book of Acts. And it's not even the first time that this pops up in the book of Luke and Acts because they were both written by the same guy, by Luke. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with uh, Luke chapter 1, but I find this really fascinating. In the opening four verses of Luke chapter 1, uh, he says um, a bunch of things, uh, but he's, uh, I'll pick it up from verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything for, from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things that have been taught. When Luke writes, both Luke and Acts, he opens it with four verses that say, I'm writing this so that you might have certainty about the things that have happened. And it's really fascinating because he uses that word things twice. Um, he opens it up and says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. And it's such a vague word, isn't it? And then uh, finally he says in verse 4, so that you might be certain of the things that have been taught. Like if you're going to open up a book of the Bible, why do you open it up with a word like things? It's just particularly vague, isn't it? And, and I think I like it because it opens up a bit of a mystery. Like he's inviting us into, ooh, what are those things? Tell me more. Uh, but there's something else going on here that we don't quite pick up in the English. The final words of verse 4 uh, say, so that you might know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. This, um, these two words, certainty and know, um, are really kind of unique. Well, the knowledge word, that's pretty normal. No, uh, knowing turns up a lot in, um, in the New Testament. The Greek word is gnosko, uh, and we get that heaps and heaps of times. But the other word, certainty, um, is a different one. Uh, the, the word for certainty is asphalos. And that word there, like, it normally only, only turns up when you're speaking about a jail. Um, that you might have um, uh, prisoners with security. Does that make sense? And so we, we read about um, that word asphalos in a couple of times in Acts, but it's only in reference to a jail situation where they're locking up people and you cannot move them out. And so to have the jail security word lined up next to the knowledge word, then it's kind of like you're saying, so that you might know with inescapable clarity. Does that kind of make sense? I'm picking up on that jail idea, the, the escaping thing. Um, as I was thinking about it, for today in our language, if we want to try and say that you might know something with absolute rock-solid certainty, we might use the phrase, um, 
you might ha have the data presented to you as double-blind, placebo-controlled. Does that make sense? And, and that, that's the way that we communicate that this knowledge is rock-solid and you can't mess with it. And so Luke, when he opens up his book, he grabs this, these words, to know with security, to have inescapable clarity about the things that have happened. Now, here's the fun thing. There's only, other one, there's only one other time in all of the New Testament where these two words turn up together again. Do you know where it is? It's not in our passage. It's the one just before it. So if you go back to Acts chapter 2, um, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit is dropped on the world as far as like a big event in salvation history. This is one of the big ones. And then Peter gets up to talk about it and gives this massive speech that's really exciting. And at the climax of Pentecost, where finally the Holy Spirit has descended upon the nations for all those who believe, in verse... This is where's the, the peak of his speech here. Um, let's go to... There we go, 36. Um, at the peak of uh, Peter's speech, in verse 36, uh, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, in the English, we don't really catch it. But in the Greek, it says, uh, let all Israel be assured of this. Do you know what the two words are for be assured of this are? It's the no with security word. That's where it turns up. And so Luke starts his gospel and says, I'm writing this so that you might know with double-blind, placebo-controlled security about the things that have happened. What things? And we only find out what those things are neatly in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel know with double-blind, placebo-controlled assurance that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Can you see how this is coming together? Luke and Acts, the whole story, is about bringing inescapable clarity... That salvation comes from Jesus Christ alone, from no one else. And after we know that, and it's made clear in Acts chapter 2, then the rest of Acts is just unfolding stories of how that kind of works out in practice, how, how the apostles bring inescapable clarity to both hostiles and non-hostiles who are confused about the gospel. Now, I love the way that the Sadducees respond to this. Because obviously they get up and they make a declaration about Jesus being uh, Lord and that salvation comes through no one else. And the Sadducees are so moved by it, not because they see them as really charismatic persuaders and they're like, oh man, you must be so good at speaking, you're wonderful about this. Now instead of that, they say in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. If we were to put that in Australian, uh, that we might say something like, they were amazed that these dumb bogans could, you know, have so much balls. Um, it, it would be that kind of effect because they've said something so dumb that might get them killed, but with such clarity that they're so convinced of it because they must have experienced something significant for themselves. Now, if we keep on reading on, then the next little section, uh, there's a really fascinating kind of mini lesson in how to understand Christian obedience because uh, the next thing that they do is they, they call them in and they, they command them. I'm going to pick it up from verse 18. 
they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, just pause for a second there, because um, do you know what the last, the last moment that they saw Jesus was? When he was ascending up into a cloud. Now, that's a pretty significant moment. If I was going to see somebody get magicked up into a cloud, I would probably remember what they said just before then. And now, the words that Jesus spoke to them just before he went up on the cloud, do you know what they were? Yeah, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and... Yeah, that, that's right. I'm commanding you to go and tell everybody about me. Now, get this. We pick it up in verse 18 and we get a reverse Great Commission. It's the opposite of the Great Commission. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. The last time they saw Jesus, Jesus said, I command you, speak in the name of me. Right? And so if that's what they'd seen and that's what they've been told to do, then when they get told to do that, what should their response be? They should, be, they should say, no, Jesus told me not to. I've got to teach because he commanded me. The last thing that happened before he got magicked up onto the cloud was that he said, go and proclaim your word. But check out what they say instead. It's really fascinating. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Yes, they make a, a reference to the obedience that they need to do. But the reason that they give is because we saw Jesus. Because, because we saw what he did and how he loved us and he's radically changed our hearts. And, and yes, I want to obey, but the reason that I'm going to give you right now is not simply because he told me so. The reason because, is because I have a personal testimony. I have been saved. I know what it's like to have Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. Isn't that a beautiful little mini lesson in Christian obedience? Yes, we obey, but we obey because we know him and we have seen, uh, we, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. All right. So let's, let's begin to pull some of these threads together. Um, what wisdom can we grab from these guys' response to gospel confusion here? I think... First of all, it's inevitable that we're going to meet people who are hostile to the gospel. Whether or not they're in Russia or in Robertson, they're going to be everywhere. Um, and so our job as Christians is to bring inescapable clarity to the gospel. We need to say that salvation is found in no one else. Um, but at the same time, we're also going to meet people who are confused by the gospel in a positive sense. Just this week I had a new mum... Uh, interested in sending her kids out to the bush school Uh, and so I mentioned to her um, look I open the bible with kids that offends some people are you okay with that and she's like oh yeah my son will hate that Um, but I've actually been reading the bible at the moment and I'm I'm really interested to to learn more about it I'm I'm wondering would you be able to tell me more about the bible (laughs) like awesome (laughs) Um, we, we will meet people who are confused by the gospel as astonished onlookers in the same way and so our job at that point, is, is one and the same, is to, be, to bring inescapable clarity that salvation is found in no one else. Now, one way that we can test if we're getting this right is to, and to figure out if we do have an inescapable clarity about the gospel is to just simply look at our prayer life. Now, this passage ends with a beautiful prayer 
um, about, uh, in, in response to what's just happened. And I love this prayer because these guys have just been told that you must not tell people about Jesus. And they left that meeting with a willing intention to disobey them. They just spent a night in jail and they left willing to disobey, knowing that that means they're likely to end up in jail again. And so um, they are facing, they're looking down the barrel of more suffering. And yet, how do they pray? In verse 29, consider their threats and enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Can you see they don't pray for the removal of suffering? That's not a bad thing to pray for. But what they pray for specifically is, a, is an opportunity to use whatever the sovereign Lord gives them to be able to speak boldly about the gospel. And so that's, that's one way to assess whether or not we have inescapable clarity about the, the gospel message. Um, back in Russia in 2007... Um, uh, towards the end of the time that we'd been there, uh, we were due to be there for like 12 days, and so like on the 10th day or something like that, um, these leaders called us together for a meeting one evening after the kids had gone to bed, uh, and they, they looked at us and they said, look, every year we do a special activity. They were quite intense as well, that's why I'm kind of putting that on. Every year we, we, we do a special activity where we dream about what the most beautiful camp might be. And now, we want you Australians to be able to do a presentation where you tell us about your puny and insignificant camp um, in Australia. And I'm pretty sure they use those words. At least that's what our interpreter, who dead set looks like Tintin. Have you, you know Tintin, the comics? Yeah, yeah. He, our interpreter, he was Tintin. Anyway, um, they, they, they said, we want you to, to give a presentation about what your inferior camps are like in Australia. And, and I was like, oh man, this... We'd been so frustrated for 10 days because we were there on this campsite loving these kids, but they, these kids had no clarity as to why we were there. They just thought that we were the fun Aussies who just sung silly songs about kangaroos. Um, but, but this was the opportunity. And so I'd, I remember saying to these three very intimidating Russian women saying, look, at our campsites every day, we open up the Bible with the kids. And we want to tell your kids why we're here as well. Can we please tell your kids about Jesus and offer to give them a Bible? And Tintin looked at me, he's like, what? <laughs> Are you sure? I'm like, yeah, man, do it. Um, and so he, he said, da, 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 da. Isus? Da, 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 da. And, he, and, and you could see these women look at each other and they said, oh, which means very good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> they said yes. And so one of the greatest joys of that whole trip was being able to do uh, as clear as we could gospel presentation for them and then tell them that if you'd, if you'd like to hear more, then we've got a Bible for you. And watching these little Russian kids come up at, to, to a spot in the library where we'd stored them um, and then grab a little Bible and take them back to their dorms and open them up for the first time. It was, it was a joy that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we had an opportunity to be as clear as we could about the gospel and he took it and he used it so that salvation might go to all the nations of the earth. Um, our job, when we meet gospel confusion, is to bring inescapable clarity that there is salvation found in no one else but Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to use some of the words from the passage that we've just got here. Sovereign Lord, you made heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them 
and you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Amen.